The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're talking about Antwerp, now a relatively unremarkable Belgian town, but in the 16th century, the first city of the world. Michael Pye is the author of Antwerp, The Glory Years, and he joins me now to talk about that remarkable period. Can you tell me first how Antwerp came to be so important in the 16th century? Because it seems, you know, it kind of flowered really quite abruptly, didn't it? Well, it did. Uh, the thing is to understand is that this isn't a town that flowers because it's got a court or a bishop or some sort of famous centre. It's a town where everything went through. It's a town for trade in ideas or secrets or goods, whatever. And that was what had to come right for Antwerp to be as dominant as it was. And what happened was really quite simple. You must remember that what's now Belgium divided at the time into Flanders and Brabant, which both were answering to Madrid and to the Habsburgs. Fine. Brabant behaved carefully. Flanders didn't. And that resulted in Flanders and towns like Bruges getting less and less advantages from the Habsburgs. And Antwerp promptly exploited that. For example, at the point where um, the would-be Emperor Maximilian had turned up on the steps of Bruges um, wanting to sort things out, the people of Bruges took him in, put him in a very nice house on the main square and proceeded to give him windows with a view out onto where his associates were being executed. This was tactless and it resulted in the... It, resu- it resulted in a certain amount of distaste for Bruges. Bruges at the same time has got its basic problem, which was mud. Its main access to the North Sea was beginning to silt up. So the combination of those two things, a bit of imperial disfavour and mud, was quite enough to give Antwerp a really good chance, and they used it. They started trade fairs twice a year, which had enormous importance because people had always gone first of all to Bruges, to buy pictures or horses or whatever it is they wanted. Now they came to Antwerp. And of course, because they were coming to Antwerp, that meant that the merchants from all over the Spanish Netherlands had to be in Antwerp. And so did all their banking arrangements and their money arrangements and everything else. So in a way, Antwerp let its its markets, its trade fairs, create the town that became so important, all of its institutions. Is it something... I mean, can we think of it, to take a cruder modern analogy, as something like a free port? In one sense, very much, yes, because Antwerp didn't have any tiresome rules about you had to unpack all your goods when they arrived in the docks. No, you didn't. You could just put them onto another boat or you could put them onto a barge to go up the Rhine or you could put them on a cart. You didn't have to pay taxes on them. The whole town was designed for things to go through. There was certainly about as much corruption as there is with free ports, that's true. And lots of people were indeed still tucking away immensely valuable objects and not talking to anybody about them, particularly not anybody who might tax them. So, yeah, there's a good analogy there. Can you sketch a little what the sort of religious situation was? Because, you know, obviously we're at a time of quite considerable religious turmoil. How did Antwerp sort of, as it were, stay clear of that? 
Well, first of all, you have to understand two things. Antwerp depended on heretics because it had traders from all over the, the all over Western Europe anyway, and the world that Western Europe knew. It, it had Jews, the new Christians from Portugal. It had Lutherans, who were particularly hated, of course, by Charles V. It had Calvinists, although they came in rather discreetly until they finally took over. It had every imaginable kind of heretic. And because it did, it had to be quite nice to them. So it refrained from actually killing people who published heretical books and simply banished them, which actually really meant you had to live about a kilometre outside the city walls. And it would be a really good idea if you didn't actually advertise the fact when you were coming into the city, you shouldn't bring a marching band with you, for example, as the German merchants tended to. So you've got a situation in which the town depends on this mix of people, on this mix of people of different faiths. So it basically makes a decision not to really look at their faiths not to actually kill people or beat people up or expel them because of their faith. And why do the Habsburgs tolerate this? Well, they do it with clenched teeth, but they do it because Charles V, as we all know, did like going to war, particularly against heresy. But ironically, he depended on this town full of heretics to borrow the money that he needed. So he had absolutely no choice. I mean, if he, if he wrecked the economy of Antwerp, he wasn't going to be able to go and beat up heretics anywhere. <laughs> And th- I mean, there is a sort of triumphal parade at one point. I mean, it's various, you know, bits of book which sort of the boss comes to town. How did Antwerp greet Charles when oh, he visited with Philip in tow? Oh, by faking it, faking it enthusiastically. The, the problem with Antwerp was that it hadn't quite got round due to absent-mindedness and not having anybody really in control of the polity. You know, I mean, you could, you can't write a history of Antwerp Town Council, as it were, because it doesn't, it hardly exists, and what it does isn't what matters. So when it came to when 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 the emperor turns up, you've got to impress him, but you've actually not got round to building anything like a splendid town hall. All you've got is, is, is a wonderful exchange, which, which uh, has been around for some time. So when you want to impress him, you have to build a fake town hall. And Antwerp very carefully measured up the site and worked out that they could just build a fake town hall, which was bigger than anything in Venice. That was really important. And they proceeded to fake everything through the town. Quite extraordinary. Triumphal arches of, of fake stucco and fake marble glorious exhibitions and shows which made no sense to anybody, but never mind, culminate in the emperor and all of his guests in the kind of world the Habsburgs understood, the world of sort of metaphor, of theatre, of spectacle, sitting down to watch a scene of Adam and Eve and the tree and the serpent, all of which one after another blew up. They were all stuffed with gunpowder and the flames sort of trickled down Eve's belly and up um, Adam's arms and across the serpent and the whole thing exploded. This was very satisfactory to the Habsburgs, very satisfactory to the town officials who had constructed the whole thing and absolutely terrified the town. It's quite extraordinary. It makes you realise that all of this extraordinary processions and performance was actually only understood by a very, very few people. This business you mentioned of, you know, the minimal state, minimal government, I mean, is Antwerp something we could look at as a sort of very early modern dream of a sort of Oakshottian, minimal state, market-driven, finance-driven world where the market is the only thing that matters and there isn't really a government and where there are rules that are ignored for pragmatic reasons? 
Well, yes and no, and actually probably no, because it would be rather like making the argument that the wonderful, wonderful thing about having your leg amputated is that you don't get leg pains anymore, you know, sciatica is over. Well, great, good, fine, but it's still a rather drastic solution. It was an absence of central government. It wasn't a conscious decision to have an alternative to a strong central government, and I think that really matters, because absence does have unexpected consequences. You talk about the goods that went through Antwerp, there's also a huge issue about the more immaterial things that are travelling through Antwerp, of ideas and information and the sort of market-making aspects of that. Could you talk about how, how and why they became so entwined? Well, uh, you have a generation of merchants that everybody in Europe, I mean, Modra Asham knows, notices them. They're merchants, but they're also humanists. They spend quite a lot of time complaining of the fact that making a decent or even indecent living is actually taking up so much time that they don't have time for the new Latin edition they were planning to put out next year. But they were entangled. The ideas were entangled both ways. If you think about it, just the fact that the world was opening up at the time, that the transoceanic trade routes were opening up, means that knowing things and finding things out was the same as trading and knowing what, what the world was like. And when you get that entanglement, you get wonderful stuff. It's also true that, I mean, the reason that Antwerp is the great print centre of the 16th century has got an awful lot to do with a lot of really rather dull things. It was an Paper was coming mostly from the north of France, and it was really easy to ship it from the north of France into Antwerp. Um, you had people who were quite used to working in workshops and working together. So it was dead easy to get them to, to work in print shops and to understand the mechanical, industrial almost, process of getting a book printed. So all of those rather dull things, apparently, about the merchant nature of the city actually made possible the printing and the spreading of ideas. You say early on in the book that it's tricky to piece together an image because, as you say, there isn't a, you know, a really a sort of central authority that keeps records and, and such records as there were are destroyed in 1576, I think, when, you know, we'll come to that later, but, but there's a, the, the town is racked and ruined. How do you build up the picture that you do of Antwerp in this book? Well, first of all, given that I'm a foreigner writing about Antwerp, the logical thing is to look for what foreigners thought about Antwerp. And there, is, there are some wonderful sources, which are an absolute gift. I mean, there are the first German novels coming out of Colmar, of all places, uh, in the 16th century, written by a man who had every reason to know about Antwerp and to be able to find out about it. You have stories, but you also have pictures and paintings and what they mean and how they were made. You have the ambassadors, because everybody was watching Antwerp. That's the point. The Medici in Florence were watching Antwerp, and not just because of buying horses or worrying about the contributions they had to make to this or that imperial chivalric order. No, I mean, they were watching everything that was going on there. They were watching the market. They were watching the prices of things, not just to buy and sell, but also because of a kind of abstract interest in what the market was doing. And when you have all of that, and you have that viewpoint, you have the good Protestant divines of Zurich who are fretting about whether it's still a safe place for good Protestant divines to be. A lot of people used Antwerp as a place through which they could pass messages, letters and so on, relatively safely, again, because you got them in 
with trade and you got them out with trade and the merchants were prepared to carry them. Okay, so if you've got all of that, then you've got a centre for ideas all the time. Is it significant that Thomas More puts utopia? I mean, he doesn't put utopia in Antwerp, but it's in Antwerp that his narrator, Raphael Hitherday, finds out about utopia. Oh, absolutely. I mean, well, I mean, More had reason to be interested in Antwerp because, as you know, he was on a, a diplomatic mission in the Spanish Netherlands and he ran out of money, which meant that he rather rapidly had to get down to Antwerp and his friends there in order to be looked after in the style to which he was accustomed. It was a difficult time. No, yes, absolutely. I mean, what More is saying is that this is the place where you find things out. This is the place where strange stories come and they're digested and they're spread to other places. And when it's interesting to me, I think, that Utopia doesn't get published in Antwerp itself for a very long time. So he's not setting it in, in Antwerp because his printer, his publisher, wants that. No, no, he's doing it because he thinks that when the editions come out in Paris or Basel or wherever, they will understand that Antwerp is the place where you find things out. It's a wonderful, it's a kind of testimonial to Antwerp's role. And of course, another distinct religious hot potato, Tyndall, ends up there, doesn't he? Well, again, again, good commercial reasons. First of all, you've got the presses. First of all, you've got the ships. And really, two other advantages. One is that nobody's terribly scrupulous about what they print. I mean, the, the emperor is constantly saying that people who print wicked books should be immediately executed. And the town, as I say, takes absolutely no notice of this. I mean, occasionally they'll stage a sort of ceremonial book burning. But six months later, new editions of the same books are coming off the same presses in Antwerp. So it's extraordinary. And the other Tyndale advantage, of course, that you forget about is wool. Tyndall's family, of course, were wool persons from the Cotswolds. God, that sounds as though they were sheep. No, I mean, they were, de <laughs> they were dealing in wool. And they, he knew about the ways to ship out of Antwerp. Now, what was happening was that you could ship out of Antwerp under various brand names with barrels full of whatever you said if they were. I mean, anything from wine to wool products to whatever. And if you were lucky, nobody actually looked inside. So that's how the sheets of the Bible in English got from Antwerp to English ports, disguised as all the goods that were going back and forth anyway. And Antwerp had its own sort of master printer in Plantin, who you talk about a little. Now, he was it his edition of the of sort of polyphonic Bible, the multi... I mean, try to remember, polyphonic's the wrong word. Polyglot. Polyglot, sorry, polyglot Bible, yes. I mean, how dominant was Plantin and how important were his, were his works there? Oh, he was the imperial typographer. Think of that as a title, for God's sake. It's one I think most people would run away from, but he actually took it. I mean, he, he, was, he was absolutely dominant, partly because he was producing so much that everybody who was making, oh, I don't know, engravings or woodcuts or whatever, had to work for him so that he got first dibs on things all the way through. Again, it's a basic market thing that actually gives him his dominant position. But also, he, he had this extraordinary network of contacts. I mean, Plantin was, was, was brilliant at that. I mean, look, this is a Frenchman who comes to Antwerp and who eventually, in a rather sort of, you know, understandably sycophantic letter to the Pope, says that he came to Antwerp because it was a town full of foreigners. And what he means by that is a town full of contacts 
and he was extraordinarily good at contact. I mean, this is a man, remember Plantine, actually managed to find a Latvian bestseller about the court of Ivan the Terrible and publish it in languages which people could actually understand. I mean, come on, that's, that's scouting on a scale that any publisher today would be terrified of, I think. Now, you may mention that Antwerp is given a, a, a sort of great tribute in Moore's work. You also argue that the very, very famous Bruegel image of the Tower of Babel, well, there's three of them, actually, but that they're showing Antwerp. Well, there are two, the, the, one of the reasons for saying that is there are two Towers of Babel, as you know. There's one which is, which is in Vienna and one which is in Rotterdam. What's important about this is that the first one was painted in Antwerp. And the Tower of Babel is under construction. There are machines everywhere. It really doesn't make an awful lot of sense. There's the tyrant Nimrod, possibly or not possibly Charles V, um, standing in the foreground and everybody is, is, is salaming to him. And then, two years later, Bruegel paints it again. But he does it in Brussels, in an official town, not a trading town. And all of a sudden, the Tower of Babel has become a monument. There aren't gaps in the walls anymore. There aren't machines constructing it. It's a solid object. It's a metaphor. It's the lesson you're supposed to learn. And that, to me, this suggests that whatever the Tower of Babel represents, the way it's represented has everything to do with being in Antwerp or in Brussels. And of course, as you know, Bruegel was chucked out of, of Antwerp by his mother-in-law, who was getting rather angry with the fact that he was seeing altogether too much of his <clears throat> ex-mistress, well, probably not ex-mistress, actually, so insisted that he move from Antwerp to Brussels as soon as possible. Antwerp, as you describe it, you know, it's a, it's a place with spies and printers and traders and dealers. Quite dangerous place. I mean, there's one story you tell, a Mr. Turchi or Turkey. Can, can you tell the listeners, uh, you know, how that, how that might, what light that might cast on the way things work in Antwerp? Well, yes, let, let's uh, let's talk about. Turkey is a wonderful story. Turkey is a story we, we can actually trace going across Europe. It's the great Antwerp story that gets, you know, to, to bishops around Bordeaux and it gets to mathematicians in northern Italy and all the rest of it. And they write about it rather conveniently and rather quickly. He was a banker. He was a useless banker. He sort of didn't quite manage to do anything right, except that he got into the confidence, and we assume the bed, of one of the most important grandee women of Antwerp. I mean, a woman whose position in terms of marriageability was such that she insisted that every suitor give her a portrait of himself. And she already had a gallery of 40 of those, so you can tell this is a desirable person. But she was beginning to hear stories that perhaps her paramour was not that reliable, and Turki panicked. First of all, he had to get rid of the man who was spreading these rumours, who was a much more respectable and successful merchant. And he did it, and this was, I think, his great mistake, with a device. Now, if you kill somebody simply by shooting them or stabbing them, it's fine. But if you do it with a device, you're going to get remembered and you're going to get reported. In fact, a hundred years later, John Ford was writing tragedies about um, the device. The device was a chair. It was fine until you sat down in it, at which point, very swiftly, the bars would come out across your thighs and trap you in place. You could not then move, and you were available to be shot or stabbed or whatever the, <clears throat> the rest of the story was. In this case, it was stabbing. And Turkey was 
thought he could get away with it, I think, to some extent, but then suddenly realised because of the number of servants he'd involved in this. I mean, it's a real sort of, um, it's slightly Agatha Christie, actually, the number of servants involved and where they come from and what they say at what time and how everybody interprets it. You know, It's the last chapter of a really irritating Hercule Poirot. But he does end up executed. And he's taken, it's a horrific scene, really. He's taken onto the main square of Antwerp, the Gautemacht, on a cart. And on the cart is the chair in which he killed Deodati, the merchant he wanted to get rid of. He's trapped in the chair. He's put on the main square in a circle of fire, which is carefully calculated so that although it is agonisingly painful, it isn't actually going to kill him. The, the one act of mercy is that he has a bag of gunpowder around his neck. And if anybody decides that he's had enough, then they can actually set fire to that. And in the end, they do, after torturing him for a good hour. He's not the only slightly kind of colourful character in here as well. There's a Mr Ducci, who seems to be this extraordinary sort of Gordon Gecko figure. He's fantastically important. And you say at one point that he corners the market in money. Yes, literally. Um, you, you, you forget that before there were banks that could actually shift money about in any useful way, or really where you could store money, um, you actually had to have physical coins. So, for example, the, one of the things that Antwerp merchants had to do was to calculate whether it would be physically possible to bring coins into town, because if there weren't going to be any, you were going to get inflation. Prices were going to go up. If there were suddenly enormously easy routes across, say, France to bring coins in, yeah, prices went down. So it was part of the market calculation was quite literally the availability of coins. Simple as that. So you could corner the market in money, and Ducci did. By the way, I resent calling him Ducci. I much prefer the English word version of his name, which is Jasper Douch, which I think is very satisfactory for the man. Yes, a douch bag. He, he seems to have been extremely sort of amoral and crooked. Is that is that a fair characterisation of him, or am I getting him wrong? Well, the, the, the kinder way would be to say that he saw money as an abstraction. Oh, he certainly did. I mean, he, he practised finance, not the ordinary business of day-to-day -day banking. He had a much, in a way, much more elevated view of it, which was that money answered only to itself, and that its rules had to be respected. And was this, I mean, he was swimming with the tide in this, obviously. Was this a kind of the beginnings of a paradigm shift. Yes, I think it is. Whether whether it's reasonable to say that Dutch himself is responsible for that, I don't know, because obviously there had to be systems around him that made all of this possible. But actually, he's the one who does, who inspires all of this, and he's the one who's so good at it that he gets imperial protection. Because after all, if you've got somebody that you know who can corner the market in money... Who do you go to when you want money? You go to Douch, of course. And there's another of the Titanic characters in it is a, and I'm bound to pronounce him even less successfully than, than Mr. Douch, um, Van Schoenbecker. Well, we, we, we could argue, but that's not. That's just not. Let's stick to that. <laughs> Schoenbeck. I, I'm not sure, but I mean, there's this one guy in your account who essentially remakes the city. But not as a sort of private citizen. I'm sorry, as a private citizen, rather than as a, quite as a sort of instrument of the state. I mean, he's, he's a sort of, um, I don't know how you, how you describe him, but how did he get in that position? I mean, he seems, is he a sort of Robert Moses character? 
not a, absolutely not a Robert Moses character because Robert Moses depended on central authority in order to build, rebuild or tear down or ruin anything. <laughs> no, 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 von Schoenbecker had one enormous advantage, which is what we talked about before, the absence of this strong central authority within Antwerp, which was running Antwerp. And if that wasn't there, then everything had to be done bit by bit and it had to be improvised. So, for example, I mean, there was a lot of tapestry production in Antwerp. It wasn't as big as Brussels, but it was big. And the tapestry makers had to have somewhere to display their, their tapestries. Something new was needed, a development. On Schoenbecker worked out a way to do it. The city needed a new weighing house, because their old weighing house was a catastrophe, basically, because everything had to be weighed outside, uh, and the chances of, of, of simple fraud were just enormous. I mean, it was quite difficult to be honest in that way house. Again, von Schoenbecker comes in and says, right, if you will get me the land in the area that I want it, I will build you the way house and I will build a whole new city quarter around it. And there are three or four quarters of Antwerp, which you can still see today, which would not be there in their present form if it were not for von Schoenbecker's determination to do something quite different build a showroom for tapestries, uh, build a wayhouse for goods coming into the city. Is he still seen as a sort of heroic and important founding father or, you know, a sort of bit of a grifter? He is, but from what I've noticed, it's rather more in the town he comes from than in the town that he went to. No, I mean, it, it, he did extraordinary things. When the town wanted to expand, wanted to go north, and build this canal zone, which was the model for, Ant for Amsterdam later, of course. When that wanted to happen, it was von Schoenbecker who worked out how to do it, because he realised what you got to do was a succession of property deals that would finance it. Not cheating, although somebody did say of him that he didn't have a hair on his body that he hadn't acquired by theft. Um, <laughs> but it, it wasn't actually being totally dishonest. It, it was a matter of who else could possibly plan it. At that point, there was no very clear idea of town planning. There's a bit when Amsterdam, when Antwerp rather becomes Calvinist, there's a bit of town planning and, and ideas that streets should be beautiful and on the whole straight. But the there was nothing like that. There wasn't a way to talk about this. And here you've got a whole new enormous zone of the city within the city walls. Somebody's got to work out how to do it. And to a large extent, von Schoenbecker did. Now, you mentioned Amsterdam. And Amsterdam, by the sort of beginning of the 17th century, has kind of taken over from Antwerp. What went wrong? How did, how did this, these golden years come to an end? Because they do so quite dramatically, as I alluded to earlier. Yeah, they really do. Well, in, in part, quite simply, because when the Spanish took Antwerp back... It had been a Calvinist republic. It had been under siege. The Spanish took it over again. And when they did, they allowed Protestants to leave and one third of the population left. And of course, by this point, people who had found the Calvinist republic sort of fairly convenient and fairly agreeable were very likely to be Protestant merchants, Protestant printers, Protestant artists, whatever. But there's another part to the story, which is that when... Antwerp finds it impossible to just stay completely outside the war of the Reformation. When Antwerp, which has always said, we are not going to kill people for what they believe, we're not going to 
do any of the things which are required by empire or indeed by Protestants, all of a sudden that wasn't possible anymore because war was impinging, war was crushing in on the city. And as it did, a lot of trades became impossible. You know, you find artists who are going, oh, in the, in, in the 1550s, just after the first moment of smashing up churches in the Protestant interest, artists start leaving because they know it's not going to be peaceful enough for people to come to them to buy things or for them to ship them out. And shipping out, of course, becomes a problem uh, in war as well, because it's very easy to blockade the Skelt, the, the river that Antwerp stands on. And it was blockaded again and again and again. And all of these things make it impossible to do business. You know, the cities, it's not that the city freezes, it's that the whole system, the sort of arterial system of the city all around, freezes completely. There's also the these extraordinary Spanish guardsmen who, who essentially go garrison, aren't they? Is that right? Yes, yes, yes. Garrison of, of Spaniards who essentially destroy the city. Is that... Well, yes, but I mean, understandably. I mean, they, they hadn't been paid or indeed fed for months. And, and they came tearing out of the citadel, which was this amazingly oppressive fort built in the Spanish interest to control Antwerp. I mean, so oppressive, for example, that when they were building the bastions of the fort, they didn't bother with the ones that faced outwards onto the river to defend the city. The first two that they built were the ones that faced inwards onto Antwerp so they could always shoot anybody who was being difficult. Anyway, the Spanish, were, the Spanish troops obviously were, were part of the machine of that oppression and not much liked, as you would understand. But they also weren't fed and they weren't paid. And they were furious. And they were furious with Antwerp because they saw it as the reason why they were in this terrible situation. I mean, why weren't they going back and forth across Flanders, meeting agreeable girls and learning how to chat them up from the conversation manuals that were freely available from Antwerp printers? You know, why weren't they having a life? They had they did something phenomenal. They broke out. They broke out into the streets, they burnt, they slaughtered. They ran people to the walls and then ran them off the walls into the moat. People drowned, people burnt alive. There are horrendous, of course, propaganda pictures, but they are horrendous pictures of what's called the Spanish Fury. It was an awful moment of destruction. And you get letters going back and forth to London from people saying, this really is the end of Antwerp. People cannot be here anymore. And how much of Antwerp as was can we still see in the modern city today? Well, bits and pieces. You have to look quite hard. I mean, this was a city where every merchant house had a tower, so you could at least pretend you had an awful lot of ships to look at on, on, on the river. Those towers are only four left. The ones that are left are quite spectacular, but they're only left. I mean, you, you have a strange phenomenon that you have things like the fort on the river, Hitchdain, which is now being unfortunately turned into a museum and they've managed to build something that looks like a chicken cage with large glass windows, which they have rammed up into the side of a perfectly decent 15th century fort. Now, don't ask me why, but I mean, that's town planning for you. Uh, there are monuments you can go to. The cathedral, of course, is there. And the cathedral is magnificent. And you can sense the way in which so many guilds could have masses sung at the same time in the cathedral without any interference one from another. 
Um, there are houses left, but mostly it's built over. And it's built over by the arrival of, well, the Rubens generation, really. Uh, never forget that Rubens was diplomat as well as painter. I mean, <laughs> and it shows. But also you, you get wonderful Baroque churches, but they've got nothing to do with this earlier period of Antwerp. You get replanned streets. Often what you see is the same layout of streets. I mean, the high street is in the same place. The main market space, the mayor is in the same place. But of course, they're completely unrecognisable. You know, I mean, the, the mayor is not full of cabbages. It's full of Louis Vuitton. And, and, and you, that's... To recognise it takes a certain amount, a lot of decoding. Do you feel this, that the story that you tell in the book has resonances for today here and there? Oh, yes. Yes, I think so. I mean, I mean, part of it is that when you allow religion to become a matter of war, when you beat people up for being wrong... You may give up the possibility of all the things that come from contact and cross-fertilisation. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to use that word, but never mind. Um, but you, you do, you give up all of these possibilities, which to me is, is nightmarish. Secondly, if you allow money to take over, you have to be, and financialization, then you get to where we are now, which is we have money as a value of everything. When you think about a painting, be honest, how long does it take you to think about how much someone paid for it at Christie's two years ago? That is the fact that is always attached to the painting. We're not worried about the chiaroscuro. We're not worried particularly about the authenticity. We actually talk about price. And when money becomes the value of everything, something really profoundly changes because other values do tend to get pushed aside. Michael Perry, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, um, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk.